0: Welcome to the Leadership Under the Microscope interview series, Plain Talk by Pragmatic Leaders, a production of JR Global. Today, we continue our series of interviews with innovative leaders from around the world. Here is your host, JR Klein. Captain Nick Sloan was born in Zambia and first went to sea in 1980. After experiencing a recovery operation and a tanker fire in 1983, He developed a taste for marine salvage and was promoted to master in 1989. During his career, Captain Sloan has been involved in many high-profile salvage operations around the world. This includes leading a 530-member strong team for the wreckage removal of the cruise ship Costa Concordia as the largest single wreck removal project in history off the coast of Italy. He has been involved in aircraft search and rescue operations, recovery on seven oil rigs and many uh, weather-related global events. In 2011 to 2016 Nick was a member of the Lloyds of London Panel on Special Casualty Representatives and joined the Resolve Marine Group as Director for European, Middle Eastern, and Africa in 2016. In a Vanity Fair article in November of 2014, Captain Sloan was depicted as the most valuable man on the seas. Our guest today, Captain Nick Sloan. Uh, Mr. Sloan, welcome to the program.
1: Well, thanks, JR. It's really good to catch up with you. It has been a while, but uh, we haven't forgotten about you, and obviously, uh, nice for you to approach me and touch
0: base again. Well, we're glad to have you here. We'll begin to get into it because, Nick, as we've talked about before, you really have a very uh, sort of interested and varied. A journey that, that you've been on for these years. And we're interested in, in hearing your story. Where have you been? How did you get to this place uh, where we are now? And then maybe something about your current projects, your current passion.
1: Okay, well, it all started a long time ago in the northern part of Zambia. That's in Central Africa. I was born in Kitwe. Uh, my parents were working on the Copper Belt. My mom was in a hospital and my dad of the uh, Northern Rhodesia Police Colonial Services, and then I came down to South Africa. I finished my high school in in, in uh, Kirsten College outside Bourbon. and then I started sailing dinghies uh, onto the bay, a bit of coastal racing, and my love and passion for the sea grew from there. So uh, I joined the South Marine, which was our, our national maritime uh, maritime corporation in 1980, and. Uh, around about the mid 83, 84, I ended up uh, assisting on some salvage, emergency response operations and then uh, they had a salvage and offshore division and I uh, ended up being transferred to there and we ended up doing pipelines, towing oil rigs around the world and doing emergency response casualty management, um, ships in distress, aircraft recovery, oil rigs at capsize, uh, mainly following very bad weather patterns. Um, or human error, you know, navigational errors, command errors, running the ground, collisions. So, uh, this expanded my horizons uh, travelling around the world and uh, that's what I've been doing for the last sort of 35 years now. So, uh, it's been quite varied and interesting. Um, yeah, all over the world, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, China, Australia's, Papua New Guinea, all over the Americas, Europe. And uh, obviously, one of the big ones was the Costa Concordia off the coast of Italy. Um, that was obviously a, a more engineering challenge. And we had a very large team of about 530 people a day. And it was just over 800 days. So, you know, two and a half years to actually get the ship upright, And then refloat her and deliver her to the shipyard in, in Genoa where she was actually recycled. So over the course of these years, I've obviously studied the oceans a lot, oceanography, climatology, seeing how the world's storm patterns are changing, especially with the, uh, if you look at the hurricanes that hit the Caribbean two years ago with, you know, first Harvey, then Irma, Maria. I mean, just three of the biggest hurricanes ever, all in one season. And now the last two months, we've had the two largest hurricanes to hit Mozambique. Um, So certainly they're becoming more intense around the world. The one that hit Mozambique last weekend is the furthest north it's ever hit. So, you know, that population was not expecting that at all. Didn't know really how to prepare for it. Just run and evacuate to the high grounds. They had over 60 inches of rain. It's decimated the countryside. And it's one of the few hopes. Uh, It's one of the major gas farms in the world. So it's almost as much gas as Qatar found 30 years ago. And Mozambique certainly needs this type of uh, good luck and good fortune going ahead to to just try and uplift and you know, build infrastructure and raise the uh, raise the humanitarian side of the country.
0: We'd like to think it's as easy as just flipping a switch and everything works, you know. But but I know there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, what do you find in, in your work to be some of the biggest barriers or the challenges that you have? to your leadership?
1: Well, certainly when we come across something, it's normally the, the worst day of someone's life. You know, it's ship having a collision, running aground, being beaten up in a storm, an oil rig capsizing. So for them, it's something that they never wanted to experience in their life. Uh, but for us, it's something that we do many times a year. Uh, we have teams around the world, and uh, most every week, we're mobilizing for some new incident somewhere. So when you get there, you're always starting from, you know, firstly, can we survive the, the weather until it moderates? Uh, what are the local hostile you know, territories? Uh, you know, do we have any political concerns? Um, we had a couple of vessels that we had to attend to, which were on the board of the Somali Pirate Zone. Uh, we were in Yemen in 2011 when that civil war broke out again. Unfortunately, that's still going on. So those are the areas you have to make sure that, you know, you have your team, you have your core team with you. Uh, they have to be experienced. They have to want to be there. Some people love it. Some people hate it. They'll join you for one assignment, and they never want to come back. Um, As a bit of an adrenaline junkie, we have, uh, our teams are made up of divers, ex-military, firefighting, um, paramedics, chemists, engineers, naval architects. So we have a, quite a diverse background in our teams and uh, each person is sort of has to put into that team. So it's very important that you identify the right type of people for different teams. Um, some people prefer the emergency response. You know, they like going in, being there for a couple of weeks, hard work, maybe four, five weeks, six weeks at home again. Uh, other people, if you're doing a wreck removal, then it's going to be a lot longer, maybe six months, a year, or in the case of the cross-apontontia, two and a half years. So then you have to, Different sort of dynamics within the team. Um, Basically, you want to surround yourself with highly competent people, so they've got their own qualifications in their own field, but they're also very competent, and uh, you know they 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 specialists, uh, real craftsmen. You have to empower them to do what they want to do. Um, But also, as the as you know, the last thirty years have evolved uh, the use of computers, computer graphics, ROV underwater video cameras. Drones have all come into play, and it's amazing—you know—jobs that we thought 30 years ago we couldn't do. Now, with a bit of uh, computer technology and more insights, access to drones and underwater uh, cameras, all of a sudden you expand your horizon So you need to keep training the teams. You know, these big container ships—they uh, carry 20,000 containers. They have some really weird and wonderful chemicals that are part of the consignment. So you need to allow the chemists to actually teach us more about the chemical compositions and the, the threats that they pose, especially a, a large fire with multi um, types of cargo. Um, the gas projects, so you know LNG, people are always very worried about it. But the more you learn about LNG as a gas, it's actually relatively safe to deal with. So uh, you know, we deal with ships on fire, tankers, chemical tankers. So chemical tankers, you have to be really careful. You need to be more highly trained. So then you bring more of your firefighting team, especially the hazmat technicians, the ones who are quite comfortable inside a chemical suit. You know, inside a chemical suit, you have very binocular vision, you sweat a lot or perspire you know, maybe a gallon in an hour you know, on a hot day inside these suits. So you have to rotate your team out. And keep them fresh. Um, you know, just go in, quick intervention, get back out. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you need to understand what are the challenges. You know, from a, the coast, the, the political situation, cultural situations. You know, we go to multicultural societies around the world, and you don't want someone to you know go into a Muslim country and disrespect them. Uh, if you're in Asia, it's all about face. You know, you have to give them something. Never try and hide anything, I think uh, nowadays with social media, access to Google, you you just have to be 100% transparent and say, listen, these are the facts, this is what we can do, these are the real challenges, we're going to need all the support we can get from the local authorities to make it work. Normally you find that customs and uh, immigration can be a real challenge, so they invite you in quite quickly, but then to get back out afterwards once the emergency is over, it can become a lot more difficult. So if you're dealing in India or Brazil, if you take equipment in, sometimes it's just better to leave it there, you know, sell it locally because it's not going to come out that easily. So you know you have to be aware of all these dynamics, um, apart from from the ship, the weather.
0: You really probably need a pretty specialized team. Also, where do you where do you get your uh, labor force?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually. Um, there's quite a lot of international companies that uh, do this type of operation but mainly on a very localised, regional basis. Uh, on a global basis then there's only a handful, yeah, maybe six or seven that do global salvage operations and some of the people migrate between the, the companies but basically you, you need people with a background in diving, um, mariners from the, the engineers, naval architects, marine chemists, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, you have a lot of strange personalities that you're putting together. And you have to understand that you, you don't treat everyone who has the same challenge the same way. And um, if you're dealing with a chemist who's highly competent in, in chemistry, uh, he might be out of his depth in the fire itself. So you know, each person you have to deal in a slightly different manner. Uh, but certainly when they are doing their core business, I mean they are the craftsmen, you have to empower them, give them all the tools that they need to be successful and then you have to join them, you, you, know, you can't say I want you to get out that helicopter in the bad weather, you have to go first yeah, and say listen, I'll go on first and I'll be the last one off and follow me and then uh, well, you, you, I think they're the full dynamic folks, right? they all have their own egos but the team comes first.
0: That sounds like a um, a, a monumental task, you know, no matter how well you do at planning, setting the goals to get things done, if if you can't execute, it isn't worth anything. I'm interested in your thinking of how you approach those kinds of situations. You've got all these kinds of diversities, you've got all these folks from different backgrounds and cultures and education. What's the the approach that you use as a leader to kind of bring them together?
1: Yeah, that's actually a very interesting um, point of view because we had a situation in Saudi Arabia just over 15 years ago and it was a Dutch, South African and Asian team. And the Dutch and the South Africans, you know, you can raise your voice and actually sort of have an argument and shout at each other, but you can't do that, you know, when you're dealing with the, the, the Asians, You have to be far more polite, explain what the challenges are, um, give them all the information and maybe more information than they need to try and explain the uh, dynamics of the situation. So we always like to have a a morning meeting with the first coffee before you jump in the helicopter or go offshore in the boat. And that's just to settle everyone's nerves, go over it that nothing's changed since you went to bed. And then in the evening, we have another meeting, and that's to cross-share uh, all of the information from that day. Uh, there's no point in, in keeping any information secret. Uh, the more that the team knows of the challenges, then you know, they come up with different ideas. Sometimes we have no idea how to overcome a particular challenge. And over a coffee in the morning or a beer in the evening, one of the guys says, well, have you thought about this? and uh, all of a sudden you say wow that's something that we never thought of but it's exactly what we need in this situation so allow everyone to you know express themselves um, keep them focused so you know they have to be given the challenge for the day they all know what the objectives are is that that's to save the ship the rig recover the airplane so the the ultimate goal is, is knowing that the in intermediate milestones that you have to achieve to get there Sometimes those are not uh, readily known to all the different parties within the team. And I believe you need to share that information. Um, we can have a meeting with 10 people where only two people are actually sharing information. And sometimes people say, well, why would you bring in the others? And we say, well, it's for the good of the whole team. They know what you're doing, and if something comes up in their particular expertise that might impact on you, it's just as well that everyone actually knows what each other is doing. So share share information, be completely transparent, but actually, you know, you have to set some targets for the day. Um, it's a challenge. That's why we're there. we have to meet those challenges
0: so i hear some basic themes very important in that is transparency everybody has to have access to the information everybody has to be able to uh, understand what's going on so that has a lot to do with clarity where you're every day you're sort of framing what's happening and people begin to understand what their jobs are and what they have to do and what their goals are for the day and then the big one that I hear inside of that is inclusivity, that you have to be very sensitive to, um, as a leader, be sensitive to the backgrounds, the, the frame of reference that people bring to the table, so that you can sort of keep that camaraderie, that that teamsmanship uh, together. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, 100% they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. They are all competent people with their own skills, but sometimes they're slightly out of their comfort because this is not their the global challenge is not their particular skill. So you'll find that once they join a team, they everyone's nervous. You know, every time you get the call, you get nervous. But then you have to uh, you have to look and see what the challenges are, where we're not going to cut corners, especially safety. You know, there's no point in in uh, having someone badly injured or worse even you know to have someone killed to save a ship that the crew are already rescued from you know the environment's important but human life is is paramount so we go in there we look at the safety of life and the crew that's struggled passengers and our own team and we always say well let's plan for the worst case scenario what happens if the helicopter crashes and we are in it okay then we need plan b for that scenario so we have a lot of scenarios as to you know, what happens if this particular batch of chemicals on the ship blows up while we are on it. Okay, then we have a scenario for that. So we like to prepare ourselves for all these different scenarios before we actually get into them. So that when it happens, you say, okay, well, you know, we, we ought to plan Z now. And that's maybe the evacuation. You know? uh, sometimes it's better to retreat, you know, rethink about it and make a different approach. Um, yeah, the weather would dictate a lot of what you can do, local politics, um, yeah, especially when there's an election or some religious uh, festivity, especially to maybe keep a low profile and uh, back off and you know, uh, survive for another day and we really look at the dynamics um, and see what scenario comes. So we have these little flags that we, uh, yeah, if, if, that, yeah, we use thermal imaging cameras on drones themselves to monitor the temperatures of the ship when it's on fire. And you can see that one cargo hold is starting to heat up. Well, that triggers another flag. So we have to then uh, identify what type of cargo is in that hold. It's all right if it's on a, on a ship with no batches of cargo. But when you get these ultra large container ships, with, you know 20,000 containers and five to 100 different products per container, um, we need to identify what's in that cargo hold so that we know how to fight that fire or even smother it and try and stop it from bursting into flames in the first place. So we need to have these scenarios we plan for and uh, dedicate uh, resources to them. If that chopper crashes, we need to have someone that knows, okay, here's a plan. And we respond immediately.
0: You've, uh, you've been at it for a while, 35 plus years. Uh, and, you know, life is the greatest teacher. Can you talk to us a little bit about what some of the lessons are?
1: Yeah, certainly uh, my worst experiences have been based on assumptions. So when you make some assumptions, which you uh, simplify the situation, the reality is certainly not that simple. And it comes back to bite you uh, so I was detained for a while in Pakistan based on making the wrong assumptions and a similar thing in Mozambique, where we thought that, you know, just because there was a major incident, like in Pakistan, a ship, an oil tanker broken up in the harbor entrance for the Tasman spirit. And we thought we had just arrived, the authorities would be welcoming, and that would be the end of it, they'd give us all their support. Well, obviously, when the tanker broke in half, 70,000 tons of oil went up with the incoming tide all over the, the city into the wetlands. There was an environmental disaster and people had to be evacuated from the fumes. So from that point of view there was a lot of anger and uh, when there's anger then the authorities like to get hold of whatever they can to leverage their position, uh, protect themselves. So. In the situation of Pakistan, they were not signatories to international conventions which would have given them recourse to uh, funds for that response on an environmental situation. So the authorities uh, detained everyone they could. There was uh, the first team that were detained aboard the Karachi Eight, and that was the captain and seven of his crew. And then there was a Greek salvage master that went in, he was detained. And, of course, uh, we went in afterwards, and then I, I was detained for another five months as well. So, but once you're detained, you think, well, we may as well make the best of it. So find out what's the challenge from the authorities' point of view, the local community. And then I was like a conduit to the international um, insurance community in London to say, listen, we can solve both the tanker and the oil and environmental cleanup but uh, they're not going to let us go until we finish. So let's just get stuck on, you know, send in more resources on the understanding that anyone else that comes in will not be detained. So those type of things, you need to prepare, plan, and try not to make too many assumptions.
0: What are your realities today? Now, you've been at this, you've done some really hard jobs, some really big things. We're all faced sometimes with the realities of life. What remains to be done in your world? What needs to happen for you to get to the place where you want to be?
1: Well, uh, that's a tough question, JR, but it's a good one. Um, yeah, I think I've learned a lot about you know, different areas of the world. But what you see is that uh, you know, when the banks collapsed in 2008, this is what, 10 years ago. The world hasn't recovered. You know, maybe parts of Europe, UK, China, America, but you know, Africa, South America, the Middle East, Asia. You know, I think that the economic factors have got worse in the last 10 years. So with that, budgets are cut. It means authorities, ship owners start cutting back on their budgets it means resources are not there to deal with what we have to deal with in the last three or four years we've had a major drought in uh, southern africa and uh, just over a year ago uh, the western cape and cape town were facing day zero and that was going to be when the water runs out Uh, we got very close to it with dams down to seven percent and what they did was they rationed people. So we were down to 40 liters a day per person. And that's for washing, cooking, eating, drinking. Um, you quickly change to adapt to, to that. But at the same time, we looked at, well, off South America, in Antarctica really, on the bottom tip of uh, South America, you've got the Larson Peninsula. And every year, many thousands of icebergs fracture off Antarctica and they drift away in the subpolar currents. Into the southern ocean, and after two to five years, they melt and completely disappear. So, with the, uh, with the, the sort of modern ability to track these icebergs with satellite imagery, a lot more information on the climatology, the ocean currents, and so on, that end, and we said, well, how can we actually divert one or two of these? You know, maybe 80 to 100 million tons, something quite sizable, but something that we can actually guide in a current. So we've been looking at this for just over two years as, you know, there's more ice that breaks off every year, it's about 2,000 billion tons, than mankind drinks in the year, the whole of the world. And that melts and is completely lost. So we're not going into Antarctica. These are icebergs that drift way north of the Antarctic Treaty regions in the Southern Ocean, go around south of South Africa, south of Australia, south of New Zealand, south of Chile, All areas where, on the west coast, due to the very cold currents, they have droughts. And uh, one of the things we're looking at is to harness one or two of these icebergs a year, bring them into these regions, harvest the uh, ice into water slurry, and try and uh, divert some of that melting iceberg water into into the areas of, of Africa, Western Australia, Chile, Santiago, where, where people really need it. You know, there, there are no rivers, um, the water that they have is 99% rainfall uh, reliant, and if you look at the trend over the last 20, 30 years, there, there is definitely uh, a drought and a an deterioration in the rainfall figures for those regions, and it's not going to be something that's going to change. You'll have annual changes, but the trend is down and maybe it's a 50 or 100 year trend that we have to get through but it's going to get worse so i think water you know when i when i was with the team that responded after hurricane maria and irma in the caribbean we took two bottles of water with us yeah we we should have been taking cases of water we got there there was no infrastructure no rent cars no electricity no atm so we needed to have money food water and then actually bring extra um, let's say supplies, you know, the basic supplies and essential supplies for the people that we actually interacting with. So we actually ended up mobilizing 19 teams around the Caribbean islands and each one of those had a barge with cranes on it and it was absolutely the first way to get food aid into regions where, you know, the uh, traditional aid was not being uh, reached. So you had the American response. you had the British and the French response to those parts of the Caribbean that were under their jurisdiction. but there were a lot of islands where no one was looking after them, and we had these NGOs who said, "Listen, we have aid we can 't get them so every time we mobilized, we were taking you know, millions of pounds of, of aid with us and that actually it brings another dynamic to your to your response, so you 're not just looking at the the maritime response, but there's a hum, human Uh, Factor there as well. You know the basic necessities of, you know, uh, filters for taking river water that's contaminated. Just basic filters, so they can actually try and filtrate it to a level where they can even drink it. Then you know the uh, the the plague starts. So you you always get disease, flies, waterborne cholera, malaria, especially in in Africa. Now they've got a massive uh, cholera epidemic in Mozambique. So, and that, that basically boils down to poor water resources. So I think that's changed the dynamics. We, we do what we do on the maritime sector, but the real challenge is water, fresh supplies. If you look at the earthquake in Haiti, you know, they don't have the resources. Most of Africa, most of South America, most of Asia don't have the resources with a financial capability to respond.
0: Sounds as though uh, your business is a little bit more than marine recovery. Your leadership style has uh, made it uh, more sensitive and inclusive to environments and cultures and people's needs. So as part of what you do, you are actually taking care of other problems or providing some solutions that aren't necessarily part of what you do at your core. But because they are present and keep you from doing the job that you want to do, you have a tendency to be more holistic.
1: No, Without a doubt. If you look at the oceans today, um, we know a lot more about them, but they're in a a pretty bad condition. The plastics, the pollution. um, The world is actually in a pretty bad place. And I think every one of us, we're obliged (laughs) to actually use whatever tools and whatever means we have available to us to do a little bit. And I think if we all do a little bit together, we actually become a, a, quite a, a force. And uh, yeah, I think we, we can't wait. You know, the, uh, the future of this planet relies on, on everyone, but anyone who has uh, responsibility or any leadership role, then they have to take that as part of their, part of their duties.
0: Nick, this has been uh, informative and and, uh, very thought-provoking. You've talked about your story. You've talked about your ideas of leading and your challenges and realities. As we come to the close of the session, do you have any final comments that you'd uh, like to make for those who may share some of your issues and ideas?
1: Yeah, I think um, when I was a kid growing up in Zambia, I was told that I used to daydream a lot. Nowadays, people would say that you're reflecting a lot. So, you know, daydreaming, doesn't matter whether you're daydreaming or reflecting. I think you need to uh, never give up on your dreams. Uh, Go out and try it, you know? I never knew that my life would be like it has been, but whenever you have an opportunity, take it, and uh, never give up, just keep on going.
0: Some great comments, some great thinking, and a very, very interesting, industry you are in. Uh, Nick, we want to thank you for the time that you've given us, uh, for your insight and uh, candidness, and we wish you the best, and we expect that uh, at some point in time, uh, we'll, we'll see you in a good way on the face of the New York Times or the London Gazette.
1: Well, thanks, Joe. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun talking to you and actually triggered some of my uh, own uh, thought processes you know just uh, when you contacted me and said you want to do this we can get this type of technology to educate people around the world in remote locations fantastic
0: thanks for listening to plain talk by pragmatic leaders jr global specializes in socially responsible business consulting J.R. Klein is an Oxford-published author, speaker and global business consultant. To learn more, visit jrglobal.co.